I'm Joelle Castex. I'm a journalist, a writer, a speaker, and a survivor. And I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. I like to make people think, and I love to make them laugh. And, and what I've learned is that when I'm open and tell my story, people feel safe to share theirs. And it's the most intriguing part of my work. Why? The most extraordinary stories live in the most ordinary of places. And that's why I created the Unasked Podcast. Most people have never heard of us because they have never needed us. Um, and thank God they haven't. That was Jeff Dion, and he's talking about the National Compassion Fund. Today's theme is compassion and what it takes for regular people to mobilize at a moment's notice to offer financial help at what is probably the worst time of someone's life. I was working for the National Center for Victims of Crime uh, as an attorney uh, in 2012 when we were approached by survivors of the Aurora Theater shooting um, who came to us and said, we don't like how our fund's being administered and we'd like you to set up a different fund for us. Now, if you can remember back then, when one of these would happen, a governor or mayor would designate some local charity, be, charity to be the recipient of those funds. And that charity was doing this on an emergency basis without any plan in place and without any knowledge or foundation of victims' rights or victims' needs or existing victim services. And invariably, there would be controversy over how much the nonprofit kept for overhead expenses, how much went directly to victims, how much went to other nonprofits providing services. And um, then people would be in an uproar and they would call Ken Feinberg for help. Feinberg was the administrator of the Federal Victims Compensation Program following 9-11. Um, and he's sort of a distribution czar. They always call him to figure out um, how does stuff get divided up. He was a special master used by the federal courts. He wrote a book called Who Gets What? And when 9-11 uh, when happened um, and they created this fund and they said they're going to appoint a special master, I thought, well, we at the National Center for Victims of Crime should be the special master. We know victims best, and we know what victims' damages are. Um, but that was a pipe dream because they were going with some big Washington type. But we, the National Center for Victims of Crime, did 27 forums around the country for 9-11 victims. Every place a plane was coming from, every place a plane was going to, every borough of New York City, every place we could find a... Um, uh, group of victims, we would go and talk to them and we would say, look, this is what happens under the fund. This is what happens in a lawsuit. This is how they compare. Only you can decide what's right for you. Because when Congress created this fund, this fund was uh, for Congress to grant immunity to the airlines and make sure they didn't have liability for 9-11. And so to be able to qualify for the fund, you had to waive your right to file a civil lawsuit. 
Um, and so people had choices to make, and we just wanted to make sure people made well-informed choices. And so it was in that experience in working with people who experienced a mass casualty event uh, and this idea of compensation um, really prepared us for 10 years later uh, when these Aurora theater victims came to us. And they didn't like how their fund was being administered in one of their big grievances was if you weren't physically injured or killed, you did not count as a victim. Yet in that theater, there were people whose loved ones died in their arms or died protecting them. And to say that they didn't count as victims just seemed wrong. And so we uh, looked at creating a fund. So the National Center for Victims of Crime established the Compassion Fund. They put the infrastructure in place and they waited. They waited for the day that they didn't want to happen. But it did in 2014 with the second mass shooting in Fort Hood, Texas. Defense Department designated us as the official relief fund. Uh, we collected donations, we distributed it to victims, and that was our beta test. Uh, and that's when we determined, yes, this process could work. And the reason we had that opportunity um, is because the first time there was a mass shooting at Fort Hood, this role was filled by the Association of the U.S. Army. And when they heard, when the second shooting happened and they heard that someone else might be willing to do that, they jumped at it. They said, yeah, we don't want to do that again. So that should have been our first clue that this is going to be really tough. Um, and so, uh, so that was the first one we did. And now since 2014, I'm on my 23rd fund and, um, you know, all the big ones that you've heard of Pulse nightclub, the Las Vegas shooting, uh, Stoneman Douglas high school in Parkland, Florida, the Walmart in El Paso. Now we're doing uh, Buffalo and Uvalde. We're going to collect donations. And once we have all the donations and we've closed it and we know exactly how much we have, those funds are distributed among validated victims. And in every community we work with, we say you have to have a local steering committee because on a lot of this stuff, there's no right or wrong answer, but the most important thing is it's gotta be the local answer. And so when we talk with a community, I don't know people in that community, but I have a list of skill sets. And I said, I need people who can do this. What do you want on the steering committee? First, you want to have a chair who is recognized and of great reputation and good character, whose participation and leadership will give credibility to our efforts. Um, one of those leading citizens types folks. Um, you also need to have an expert in psychological trauma because I need someone other than me explaining to the steering committee why psychological trauma is real and counts. You need to have a trust and a state's lawyer 
um, because we're dealing with deaths and those are complicated and the law in every state is different. And so we want to have that. We want to have um, people from victim services. Sometimes we have faith leaders. Sometimes we have medical professionals. Um, sometimes it's leading employers and other civic and community leaders. Um, sometimes people give a lot of money to the fund and they get a seat on the committee. More, most importantly, we want a local steering committee to be a reflection of the community that it's serving. Um, and uh, for instance, when we did the Fund for Pulse nightclub, Orlando is a big city, but in many ways, it's a pretty parochial town. And so the um, leading civic class, it's really easy when you say, okay, we need to do this. Who are we going to call? Well, let's call the people we always call. And they pulled together the usual suspects to sit around a table and come up with a solution. Well, the Pulse nightclub shooting disproportionately impacted uh, Hispanics and LGBT folks. And those are two groups that did not traditionally have a seat at the table in Orlando. Uh, but much to Orlando's credit, they recognized that and quickly brought them in. And so we always need to make sure that um, if there is a particular group or demographic that is impacted by a shooting, that uh, they're represented on the steering committee. Um, if we do a workplace shooting and it's a union shop, I like to have a union rep on there. And basically this steering committee makes the rules. We give them some guidance and we say, look, if you do A and B, C is gonna happen. Are you okay with that? And so they have the benefit of other communities' experiences. Um, and they make the decisions about who's gonna be eligible and how they're gonna draw the lines. Everybody is so quick to start collecting money and raising money, and it's really well-intentioned. But the vast majority of those people do that without any thought whatsoever about how are we going to give it out? You know, like, uh, where do I get the list of victims' addresses? Well, guess what? You can't get that. Law enforcement can't share that information with you. Um, and so people, you know, don't really know what to do. So that's why, surprisingly, GoFundMe has been a great partner for us. Um, one, they've got a great platform and really good technology for collecting money and tracking it. But when they, if someone opens up a GoFundMe and it takes off and all of a sudden has millions of dollars, then the GoFundMe will often say to them, have you thought about how you're going to distribute these funds? You might want to talk with the National Compassion Fund. And sometimes they're setting us up with people who have a whole bunch of money that needs to be distributed. If you open a GoFundMe for an individual person, help Joelle pay her medical bills, that can go to an individual. But if you set up a GoFundMe for uh, an undefined group of people like victims of this mass shooting, then they require that money to go to a 501c3 nonprofit. And so that's how um, you know people often find us because uh, they've got this money and they're like, okay, now what do we do with it? But what a lot of people don't realize is how complicated it is. And they're like, give the money to the families. Okay, who's the family? Is it 
you know, what if the parents are divorced? What if they're not married? Who counts as a family member? Um, and even times families can't decide um, amongst themselves who should be getting it. Um, and uh, so there's lots of issues that have to be worked out. Um, if someone, if we give money to someone and they receive income-based public benefits like Medicaid, giving them a whole bunch of money could cause them to lose their Medicaid benefits. So we make sure we ask about that. And if someone does have those benefits, then we have them talk to a pro bono lawyer who figures out what do we need to do to protect their benefits? Do we need to put the money into a special needs trust or something like that? Um, and if it's a child who's getting money, and that could be because the child was injured or present um, or the child lost a parent, um, then we need to follow the Uniform Transfer to Minors Act law in that state and make sure that that money is protected for the child. Um, after Columbine, they were just giving money for injured kids to parents. And there were some parents who got divorced and a dad who took off and took all the money and left some poor kid in a wheelchair destitute. So we need to make sure that there are protections in place, particularly when we're dealing with a um, uh, an event like the shooting in Uvalde, where the overwhelming majority of people that will get money from this fund are like 10 years old. And so we have to make sure they're protected. When an event happens, we don't have any money in the bank, um, but sometimes it starts going pretty quickly. So for instance, um, with the Pulse nightclub, about two o'clock in the morning, uh, someone at Equality Florida opened a GoFundMe account. Um, by three o'clock in the afternoon, it had like $900,000 and they were really nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do with this? And we reached out to them and eventually that GoFundMe grew to $9 million. Um, and that was a big part of the money that we distributed in the in the Pulse nightclub. So, so being able to um, respond quickly. The National Compassion Fund has no full-time employees. Um, we have some part-time employees and some contractors. And so we operate like the National Guard uh, and we get called up as needed. And sometimes there are lulls when um, we don't have any funds going. Uh, but in the last year, we've opened and operated 10 funds. Um, and we've had as many as five uh, or six going at one time, um, which has had me feel like I've done four tours of duty in Afghanistan. You know, whenever, uh, whenever we do a fund, um, I've got to uh, get authority from our board of directors that we're going to open a fund and they want to know um, how are we going to cover our expenses. And so usually um, when we're going to do a fund, uh, we have to find someone uh, to cover our costs. Um, to operate a fund, um, it is usually a minimum of $50,000 that it costs us. Um, a larger fund might be 75, big ones 100 or more.
Um, and it's really driven by the number of people that we're dealing with. So oftentimes, one of the first questions I ask when someone calls us for help and there's been a, a, a mass shooting is I'll ask, how many people were in the building? Because I'm trying to get an estimate of how large our potential universe of applicants is um, so that we know what it's going to cost us to do this. So um, sometimes when it is a company that's been impacted and we've done funds for uh, EA Sports, um, Fifth Third Bank, SunTrust Bank, Molson Coors, FedEx, Kroger, um, uh, Stop and Shop, Tops. Um, so when it is a company, usually the company will start the fund with a donation for the victims and then make a separate donation to cover our administrative expenses. Sometimes um, we work with community foundations. And when we did um, the uh, Walmart shooting in El Paso, it was two community foundations that came together and covered our expenses. Um, when uh, we did Pulse Nightclub, there were five LGBT foundations that came together um, and helped cover our expenses because they wanted to make sure that it was a group uh, that had some um, uh, cultural competency in working with that population. Um, and we have also on two occasions gotten um, large grants from GoFundMe to do this work. GoFundMe, the corporation has uh, given us money so that we are able to do this work. And we, certainly try to do it as cheaply as possible. And if we do a fund for, if our actual expenses are less than the amount that we've received, we'll sock that away. Um, and to build up a nest egg. So sometimes if we need to do a fund and there's nobody to pay um, our expenses, if we've got the money in the bank, we can do it. Um, we just did a, uh, uh, and a lot of times at schools, um, when we did the fund for Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan, um, we did it at no cost to anyone because we had uh, enough in our reserves that we could absorb those expenses. Um, when we did Santa Fe High School in Texas, uh, we did not charge anyone. Um, uh, but it's the the uh, you know the practical side of running a nonprofit, um, like I said, we don't have any full-time employees. Um, uh, but when people work and do this work, we've got to pay them. We've got to we have travel to go out and meet with families and do the town halls and work with the committee. We've got to pay IT people to build our online um, applications and things like that. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's about trying to, to strike that uh, appropriate balance. And every once in a while, people will just donate to us so that we have some money and we're ready to uh, offer those services if there's no one available to, to pay them. The money we give people is a gift. 
Um, and it's important that it's a gift for a lot of reasons. One, if you're a victim of crime, you have three different ways that you can um, be compensated for your losses. Uh, you can, you're entitled to crime victim compensation from the state. If the offender is arrested and convicted, you can, uh, they can be ordered to pay restitution. Um, or you can file a civil lawsuit against someone who's responsible. And all of those things will deal with your specific losses individual to you. Because this is a gift, we like to treat everybody the same. And so all of the people in the, uh, uh, all of the families of the deceased will receive the same amount of money. All of the people who have psychological trauma benefits will receive the same amount of money. Um, because back in 9-11, when they were actually paying people's damages like they would have gotten in a lawsuit, there were broad discrepancies or disparities between a stockbroker at Cantor Fitzgerald, who what their future lost income was, and uh, a dishwasher at Windows on the World. And so some people were saying, oh, you're saying this life is worth more than this other life. And that's not what they were saying, but I understood the optics. And so we treat everybody the same. Um, and so the amount of money that people get in a fund is really just a question of how much money is donated and how many people do you have in each category. The scope and scale of the pain of a mass casualty crime affects an entire community. And many times, there might be questions about the gunman and the gunman's family. And so I asked Jeff, how do you handle cases where people may say, gee, the gunman and the gunman's family, are they victims too? There was a shooting at a warehouse in Wisconsin um, where one employee shot and killed two other employees and then later left the premises, drove someplace else and um, uh, took his own life. And um, there were some people in the company who were saying, oh, we have three victims here. Um, and there was talk about, well, is the shooter's family eligible and we were like no the 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 backlash would undermine all of our work um and nobody would give money um and so we now actually put it in our um letter of agreement when we're brought on that you know victim the word victim specifically excludes um the gunman or the gunman's family um and I say, you know, the word victim to me means that at some moment in time, someone else was in control. And uh, when someone is shooting other people and they are deciding who lives and dies, that that moment they're in control. And in that context, they are not the victim. Uh, and so um, we don't um, include those. 
this is a job that I really wish I didn't have to do. And the only thing worse than having to do this job is the thought of what's going to happen in those communities and what's going to happen to those victims if I don't do this work. I remember doing uh, the Parkland Fund in 2018, and I was in the middle of doing that fund, and my daughter was graduating from high school. And I remember power washing the back deck, getting ready for her graduation party. And all I could think about was those kids at Parkland who were supposed to be graduating, but weren't and the parties that their parents weren't having. And it can really make you feel guilty. Now, I've learned to recognize that sometimes people are having a trauma reaction near me, not necessarily at me. Um, and, uh, but the fact that I come to this work as a homicide survivor, the whole reason I spent 25 years in uh, working in crime victim services uh, was because when I was 14, my sister was murdered. And when they know that the person who's handling this has experienced something similar to them, they're comforted by that. And they're like, okay, this person might get it. They're looking out for us. Um, uh, there's a great, um, I guess it's almost like a personality indicator, Clifton Strengths Finder, that helps identify people's strengths um, and with the premise that if you let people play to their strengths, they're going to be more productive. And there are 34 different strengths, and you take this test, it'll tell you your top five. Um, well, I actually found out the order for all 34 of my strengths, and there's a strength called empathy, um, but it's 32 out of 34 for me. Um, and I was really self-conscious about that because I thought I'm an empathetic person. Like I have empathy, but if you think of being a, if a telepath can read other people's minds, an empath can read other people's emotions. And it is almost as if, uh, if someone with a great deal of empathy is doing this work, they can really be overwhelmed by it. So I look at uh, my low empathy scores, not meaning that I don't have empathy and I don't care, but it sort of doesn't stick to me. And so I can do this work, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact, especially after doing 10 of these funds in a year. Um, that's exactly what we're doing. I mean, the National Compassion Fund was started by survivors of other mass casualty crimes that wanted to make sure that other families didn't have to go through what they went through. Um, and we want to have a process that is fair and transparent and victim-centered and trauma-informed. Um, and it is tough. Um, we know that trauma is cumulative. Um, and I think I can do this work uh, because I have the ability to not take it to heart. Families will want to meet with us because everybody has that opportunity, whether they just want to tell us something that they think 
share information that isn't included in their application, or sometimes people just want to tell you who their loved one was and that they're not just a name on a list. And I take those experiences and those stories. And when we go to the steering committee uh, to ask them to approve a final distribution and to help them understand what people in these different categories went through, that's when I feel like I'm their voice. And sometimes I will get emotional. Um, and I worry that it might seem unprofessional. Um, but I went back into therapy and my therapist said, you actually have a great perspective. You're doing fine. And it's okay for you to announce to people that, you know, this is tough stuff and I might become emotional, but I'm not going to deny that because this is what we're dealing with is really sad and tragic. And, uh, it's important for you to really understand what people are going through. I think a lot of communities and steering committees go into these town halls really afraid of what's going to happen and how bad it could be. Um, but if we can bring the temperature down, um, uh, it is people understand what we're doing. And sometimes people just want to have an opportunity to be heard. Um, whether it's at a, uh, a town hall forum, because remember a lot of times in these cases, the gunman is killed by police or kills themselves. And so there's no trial. So victims are denied that opportunity to be heard. And sometimes they want to use this public forum to share their experience. And it can be raw and it can be terrifying. Um, even when I have individual meetings with folks, um, when we did Pulse, um, there were lawyers from the Orange County Bar Association, the uh, trust and estate section that volunteered to sit in um, uh, as we talked to folks and in case someone needed legal assistance uh, that they might be able to help them out. Um, and the very first woman that uh, we met with, she came in and she was telling her story. Then you're on the edge of your seat wondering, did their friends make it? What happened? How was this story going to end? And we talked with this woman who was shot and survived. And after she left, one of the lawyers said, wow, that was really intense. And I said, buckle up. It's going to be a long day. Again, this is Jeff Dion, the CEO of the National Compassion Fund. There was uh, a shooting at a SunTrust bank in Florida, and the gunman came in and killed all of the employees and some customers. And there was another customer 
an elderly gentleman who came up to the door as this was happening and saw what was going on and left and went back to his car and called 911. And the bank manager was not at work that day. But her entire staff had been murdered. And generally we award we give gifts and recognize trauma based on people who were there because so much of trauma is something you experience sensorily. It's things you see, seeing things you smell, things you hear. And but people made the case that this bank manager should be included. And ultimately we did. But when we had a town hall meeting and heard from folks, there were people who said, well, the bank manager deserves money, but this customer doesn't. I always tell people, don't downplay anybody else's experience. Just talk to us about what you've been through and help us understand your perspective. Um uh but there are certainly people who feel that way and that's why it's so important that we get um uh feedback from the community um i think one of the pillars that we're based on is about helping people understand and accept that psychological trauma is real and one of the first funds we did was for a terrorist shooting in Chattanooga Tennessee and there the mayor said um you know a lot of our first responders are real you know broken up over this can the can the fund be open to these first responders as well and we said if that's what you want we can do that and there was a uh police officer that was shot and wounded um uh in the event and uh there were others who um uh were really traumatized because it was so far outside their normal experience and so people applied and first responders applied and we approved them uh but then when we went to give out money there was a big backlash on social media and so then some of these first responders refused to take the money uh that we had um allocated towards them and i remember talking to someone thinking does is anybody complaining about the police officer who was shot getting money and they're like no not at all i'm like well that's why people have to understand that the psychological trauma that these people went through is every bit as real and impactful and debilitating as a physical injury um and so that's one of the things that we always have to help people understand and i think that's part of our mission uh so that they can recognize uh what that's like um you know in Uvalde Texas um there are some people who say people who are not injured shouldn't get anything there's other people who say well people who had just psychological trauma could get something but only if they were in this particular building where the the shooting occurred and other people say no it should be even broader and kids who had already gone home and weren't there when the shooting happened should be included and so it's important that we get public feedback cuz like i said there's no right way or wrong way to do this but the most important thing is that it is the local way and it is that community's decision and that those decisions are based on community values and community experiences um but 
I would be lying if I didn't say that there were stories and people that um, haunted me um, and that I still remember um, in uh, when we did Pulse um, and we were looking at the applications, I remember one where and there if you were in the club you were you the eligibility standard was just present because it was so horrible and so all-encompassing that if you were in the club or on its patio at the time it happened you were included um, because nobody got out of that club okay and i remember one application and someone wrote that they were crawling on their hands and knees to the exit and they were pretty sure that they were going to die but the thing that really bothered them was not death but that that was how their parents were going to find out that they were gay a boy is in the hall with his girlfriend and the shots ring out and they hit the ground and then he says we've got to run and he goes for a classroom only to realize his girlfriend isn't with him. And then the teacher won't unlock the door to let him out to get to her. And it wasn't until hours later that he realized that while he was right next to his girlfriend, she was shot and killed. Um, and he's a junior in high school. I remember in uh, Surfside, there were some parents uh, who wanted to have a meeting with me and just tell me about their son. Um, he was down visiting uh, uh, a friend of the family. He was like an uncle. And uh, they were having a good time. And he's like, hey, um, can I change my flight? I want to stay an extra couple days. And his mom said he was so worried about, you know, it's not going to cost anymore. He said, I don't want to do it if it's going to cost anymore. Um, and, uh, and so he stayed. Um, and it was on that extra day that the building collapsed um, and he was killed. And so his father lost his son and his best friend who his son was visiting. Um, and they just wanted me to know about their son as a person and what he was like and what he did um, so that we didn't lose sight of uh, the humanity of it all. And I think that's what we have to what we have to carry with people. All of these acts are acts of hatred. And the only way you can counter hatred is with love and compassion. Um, and some people are just really surprised to learn that, you know, when they find themselves in this situation, that there's a whole organization or industry of people, uh, a whole field of victim services that they never needed to know about, but now it's here um, to help them. But they also need to know that doing it right takes time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people complain, uh, uh, people were complaining on social media. One person in particular had a large following. They still haven't distributed money for Buffalo and Uvalde. And it's like, well, yeah, we haven't because the community hasn't even decided 
who's eligible yet. Jeff is being kinder than I think I could be if I were in his shoes in this situation. Writer and podcaster Sean King has openly criticized the National Compassion Fund's distribution in Buffalo and Uvalde. He's blasted the National Compassion Fund for not handing out money immediately. When Jeff reached out to King to invite him to be a part of the process, to perhaps attend a town hall or to speak with steering committee members, King instead published Jeff's email to King's List and accused Jeff and the fund of racism. Since then, Jeff and the Compassion Fund have been plagued with threats of violence. What is ironic to the point of ridiculous here is that King himself has been accused on multiple occasions of misappropriating funds from his political action committees. In the latest scandal, he was accused of inappropriately using more than $40,000 of donor funds from his pack to buy a dog, which he later returned in August 2022. His other projects have been blasted for poor management, lack of protocols, and the misuse of donor and investor money. I reached out to King and his representatives, but they did not respond to our requests for comment. If we had $2 million, the distribution would probably be weighted really heavily towards uh, the families of the deceased. But if we have $5 million, then maybe we can do more for other people as well. And um, so it's important to realize that that takes time. Um, and uh, people don't understand all of the intricacies and complexities uh, and legalities involved in people money. Um, but at the end of the day, when we've uh, distributed a um, all the funds, um, we have independent auditors come and review um, both our general ledger and our bank accounts um, to validate that, yes, 100% of what was received was distributed. Um, and they will pull samples and say, yep, everything that was all of the uh, transactions we saw were all supported and in conjunction with the protocol. You know, I'm getting ready to go on vacation. And I need to, to be able to turn my brain off a little bit and give it a rest um, from all of these horrors. And every time I go on vacation, I just say a little prayer and I'm like, dear God, please let the world just be cool to each other just for 10 days or two weeks so I can have a vacation and people uh, aren't going to be, you know, killing each other and that I'm, that I'm going to have to deal with. You can learn more about Jeff Dion, the National Compassion Fund, and the funds that they currently have open at nationalcompassion.org. Jeff is also the executive director of the Zero Abuse Project. You can learn more about them at zeroabuseproject.org. The Unasked Podcast is written and produced by me, Joelle Castex. So if you like what you're hearing, give us, and it's really just me, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you stream quality entertainment. Plus, tell your friends and tell everyone who's a podcast junkie.
If you want to learn more about our guests, you can visit our website at unaskedpod.com. And that's also where you can find links to all of our socials and our Patreon page. And if you know of a story that needs to be told, you know, an extraordinary story in a very unlikely place, you can contact me there. Thanks, and until next time.